Hannah Catherine Jones presents a lecture performance that critically reflects on her long-term project Afrofuturism and Gesamtkunstwerk in which she set out to speculatively explore the relationship between Sun Ra and Wagner, two cultural giants, seemingly irreconcilable in many ways but him Jones brought together as part of her doctoral research at University of Oxford. In deconstructing her own argument, and the terms Afrofuturism and Gesamtkunstwerk themselves, Jones draws from contemporary examples including Beyoncé's Homecoming and Kanye West's Sunday Service. Hannah Catherine Jones is a London-based artist, musician, researcher, radio presenter, composer and conductor, and founder of Beckham Chamber Orchestra. This lecture performance was recorded on the 26th of February 2020 at Loop Project Space. Hiya, thanks so much for having me. It's really nice to be back here. Um, I'm going to try my best to be concise, which is never easy, especially when talking about such big things. Um, so um, if that returns, that would be great. <laughs> okay, great. So Wagner and Sun Ra. Um, I entered into a, a PhD at Oxford aiming to compare these two artists, musicians, who we associate with the weighty terms Afrofuturism, related to Sun Ra, and Gesamtkunstwerk, which means the total artwork, which is related to Wagner. Um, through my own practice, like I, as has been said, I've got a really, really broad practice. I do loads of stuff. Um, and for me, staying within the institutions and staying within the, the kind of... Um, I don't know, finding a place for myself with my work in the cultural world, it made the, the word Afrofuturism and the word Gesamtkunstwerk have been super important to me, continuing to make the kind of art that I make, the art music that I make. When Every time I say art, I'm really thinking in the broadest sense of the arts and not really trying to segregate out art and music, but, you know, we're not quite there yet, so I'll, I'll do my best to navigate. Um, so this term Gesamtkunstwerk, it's a kind of aggressive term, means the total artwork. It's really to do with a synthesis of the arts and a kind of rejoining of what was always or historically seen together, um, music, dance and poetry. Um, I'm going to show the... The drawing that I did on the way to my Oxford interview on the coach, did it pretty neatly uh, with a coffee cup, just to kind of show this kind of crossover of where I was then. So this is from like 2016, I think. It shows, yeah, the crossover. So this idea of spectacle, um, oh, myth, sorry, right at the top, myth, um, spectacle, technology, performance, synthesis, dreams to an extent, and then I put music at the bottom. Um, what they share, as you can see down the middle, is quite a lot in that things that are total, you know, they're going to try and, uh, you know, achieve some form of totality. Um, so 
it's also really hard to classify what these things are. I think I'm going to have a little bit of um, help from Sun Ra in his own words, a short clip from the film Space is the Place. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Rave. Planet Rave's sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to up in Planet Rave, you understand. We set up a colony of black people here. See what they can do on the planet all their own without any white people there. They could drink in the beauty of this planet. It would affect their vibrations. For the better, of course. Another place in the universe, up under different stars. That would be where the altered destiny would come in. Equation-wise, the first thing to do is to consider time as officially ended. We work on the other side of time. We bring them here through either isotope teleportation transmolecularization, or better still, teleport the whole planet here through music. So yeah, it felt important to kind of play that so you could see Sun Ra's unconventional band leading style or conducting style, if you want to call it that. But, um, you know, Sun Ra was a polymath. So he, he was from Saturn. He's not from this planet. Sent to Earth to spread joy through music with the orchestra that he founded. That's a picture from, you know, the 20 teens, Marshall Allen, who's like 93 now, still band leading, still going. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Sunra Orchestra when they tour, you have to go see them. There is this, yeah, this kind of contagious joy. They, the way they dress, which they've been dressing, you know, in this splendid way, this Afrocentric kind of, um, you know, a nod to the Egyptian kind of, majesty which was at the time you know a lot of people didn't take them seriously because you were supposed to like not express yourself in that way but this was like revolutionary black pride and not only that but he uh revolutionized kind of improvisation through a band uh, an orchestra setup so encouraging solo improvisation amidst the the whole bringing everyone back together not necessarily using too much too many uh written uh sheet music but you see a music stand there so sunrise a big deal in terms of um organizing sound what we would call an orchestra you know he calls an orchestra there's various different um spellings and terminologies of that Greg Tate is the writer who argued that black people, uh, in America certainly, lived the estrangement that uh, science fiction writers kind of uh, talk about. All the stories about alien abduction, all the stories about alien spaceships taking subjects from one planet and taking them to another, genetically transforming them. Greg is really saying, Greg is kind of recasting American history in the light of science fiction and saying, well, look, all those things that you read about alien abduction and genetic transformation, they already happened. How much more alien do you think it gets than slavery, than these, than entire mass populations moved and genetically altered, entire status moved, uh, forcibly dematerialized. It doesn't really get much more alien than that. And this is what Sun Ra was saying, you know, from way back when, like um, born in 1914 in Birmingham, Alabama, 
really from Saturn, but that's where he first appeared on Earth. And somebody who was saying, you know, we've got to look to the past to imagine a better future or at least to learn from what's happened to to try and empower ourselves you know like that's kind of part of my cultural heritage and you know the entire diaspora it resonates wide and this idea of you know producing art to kind of prove that you're human so Sun Ra was actually imprisoned he was a conscientious objector to the second world war and he was imprisoned and a black man in prison in Birmingham, Alabama in like 40, whatever it was, he was given, he was given a piano because he was so gifted that they were like, this guy, he's special. He needs to have a piano. Um, so there's that kind of the, the art or the music kind of proving the humanity. Uh, this is an image of Phyllis Wheatley, who Kojo Eshun, who just was in the last clip in that amazing documentary, The Last Angel of History, mentions Phyllis Wheatley, um, an enslaved woman who was in Boston, and she was an incredible poet. And the family that she was owned by, who were like, you know, supportive of her gift, um, wanted to get her books published. They did eventually, but she had to read her own poetry in court to prove, right, recite it from memory to prove that she had written it because they couldn't believe that a, an enslaved black woman could. So this is like, this kind of history, this kind of pushing back from all this is is super important. Um, and, you know, the idea of myth in itself, like Sun Ra kind of prophesized his own sort of being saying, I am from Saturn. I am here to spread joy through music. I am going to open up my house as some sort of like, almost like what we would consider a university or at least like a pedagogical kind of community where he would teach people to play instruments, uh, teach people, he had lots of books, you know? And this kind of wisdom ignorance poem, it really stands out to me. Maybe I'll read it, I'll read it. When reality reaches a certain point, beyond that point is myth. Even before the beginning of what is called reality, myth is the being before. When all that is parable possible is lived and caused to be, the hope of continuation living being is myth. Myth from equational wisdom ignorance is, is. The myth is the seemingly false and the seemingly impossible. The borders of the realm of myth are vast and non-existent because there is no limit to the imaginative realm idea of the myth. Here is a challengingly frontier. But yeah, like the, uh, the book of um, poetry, which is called The Immeasurable Equation, because Sun Ra wasn't really a philosopher. He was dealing with equations, you know, even though he taught a course at Berkeley, California, called The Black Man and the Cosmos that drew from all these kind of things that he was talking about, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead and all kinds of things. So Sun Ra is hugely important has definitely kind of validated a lot of black cultural production and particularly in terms of like staying within an institution and bringing blackness into that. So Sun Ra is like, you know, really sorted me out. I'm now going to swerve it to Wagner. Um, so I'll quickly just say a few things. So I'm classically trained, whatever that means. My dad is from Barbados, he's a violinist, he taught me. That's an incongruous kind of setup, I guess, um, in terms of like race normativity and like learning instruments, but there you go. So I've been, I've had classical music kind of drummed into me from, you know, birth and I'm totally grateful for that. I found it very limiting at times uh, within institutions, let's say, I've branched out from that, but 
as a as somebody who is interested in classical music and especially as somebody who is now a conductor you kind of can't ignore Wagner Wagner was the first person to um so back in the day the conductor would actually face the audience and like the orchestra would be behind them so it was a performance about them but Wagner was like what's the point I can communicate better with the musicians if I'm you know doing that to them and obviously that's the template that we use today I couldn't really ignore him but I always knew about the the anti-Semitism and the appropriation by the Nazis, which obviously puts me off. Um, I'm now going to have a bit of a, a kind of backup from a Jewish, uh, well-known, I guess, celebrity cultural producer, Stephen Fry, a little uh, excerpt which kind of grounds what the Gesamtkunstwerk is. So here's Stephen Fry from the documentary Wagner and Me. He believed the greatest art form that mankind ever had was Greek tragedy. Not because of the nature of Greece or the nature of tragedy, but because Greek tragedy encompassed all the arts of acting, verse, music, dance, costume, spectacle, chorus. But more than that, it involved the whole community, all people. It wasn't a snobbish, elitist thing. It was a, a ceremony, a, a, a celebration. But more than that, it was a religious ceremony. And on top of that, too, its subject matter was myth. And Wagner believed very passionately that the very nature of myth was universal because it was outside time. It wasn't about the bourgeois or the aristocracy. It wasn't stories of love affairs in history. It was, it was, it was outside time, almost like science fiction, but science fiction set in the past, if you like. It could speak to everybody, whatever their condition. So his revolutionary idea was to have what he called the total work of art, the Gesamtkunstwerk, um, and that therefore the word opera was pointless. He hated grand opera with its um, its flounces and its absurd trills and ornaments. Obviously, if the sound just cuts there, Carl. Cleanse the theatre and cleanse art of all this nonsense, and to get back to these elementals and to make a theatre for the people, which was music and dance and drama and everything. And he was going to be the one to create it, and he was going to be responsible for all aspects of it. And he put this together in an essay he wrote here in Switzerland, um, uh, which was about uh, the future work of art. Uh, and it was a future work of art that he was to make into a present work of art, the Wagnerian music drama. Thank you, Stephen Fry. So, um, yeah, so conducting... Also being a composer and somebody that likes to very much kind of uh, has a tendency to dominate. I like to compose, I like to conduct, I like to do all the things, but yeah, you have to have an awareness, um, which I don't think Wagner did at all, of what it means to kind of have this role of power within an orchestra. And this is a um, an image that I refer to quite often just to remind myself. It's called Dictators by Christian Marclay. Obviously the conductor is the dictator. The orchestra is a kind of um, potentially it's, you know, represents uh, a society. So it's like really thinking about how, how does one like maneuver when you've got all that power? But, um, but yeah, Wagner kind of built the Festspiel House or the Festival Opera House in Bayreuth, um, which I had the experience of going to Bayreuth. I didn't set foot inside there because I couldn't get tickets and I wasn't allowed. And my feeling towards that was, ultimately relief um yeah it's a it's set on the top of this hill it's called the green hill so it's it's really it really sits atop the town um the thing about the festival house is yeah it revolutionized theater and how we kind of um how we kind of you know go about the ritual of theater is in debt to this this moment there's no 
mistake in that. Um, so Wagner was the first one to sink the orchestra into a pit so that all eyes could be on the stage. That's like standard, I guess, everywhere. The lighting there was... Um, the way that lights turned down when we're at the theatre or the cinema, that was happened for the first time there. The traces are everywhere. I mean, like, all right, heteronormative life would obviously um, resonate more with this stuff, but here comes the bride. The do, 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 do. That's a march from Lohengrin. Sorry for singing it so jollily. Um, but yeah, these kind of stage performances that were intoxicating, people would say. And, and having... Having been intoxicated with this music, it's a problematic thing. It doesn't sit right. Um, and it's clearly about perpetuating the status quo of European, Western, usually white, usually male, usually, you know, uh, het dominance. But the thing about, the thing that I cannot get past and the thing that I was highly critical about and still am is that the power of Wagner's Gesamtkunstwerks or, or operas or whatever, the way that they were appropriated by the Nazis is basically, this is like a, uh, an image from the master singers and it's like these flags, these processions, it kind of directly gave image to what would then later become, you know, Hitler's kind of vision. Hitler's vision was preconceived by Wagner in the kind of stagings. You can see it, you know? It's like, um, it's kind of undeniable. You can tell I'm a little bit uncomfortable, like, talking about it. And I think that's fair enough. Um, but it's important, especially as... Uh, I think globally, I uh, can speak for the UK, I can speak for a few other places, that fascism is amplified. It's never gone away, but it's the volume's up, you know? And I feel that, I think a lot of people feel that, and I think we feel it globally. Um, so it's like, what can we learn from this? Um, and going to Bayreuth itself, it's a paradise if you are, if you fit into that world. I mean, like, I don't think I do. This is a kind of advert from back in the day about chocolate that was, you know, colonial chocolate and all this stuff. So it's it's all deeply embedded into things that are of, you know, the diaspora. So I've kind of dug a bit and just kind of seen this stuff runs deep. And then, you know, it's not gone away. Like this is today. Like there was a bar, they have bars around like this with this kind of, it's gollywog-like, you know, it's like um, a black character caricature in a way in a position of service around beer it's 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 deeply uncomfortable to kind of go there and kind of be in a place like that and be like okay here we are and it's kind of you can't talk about Wagner without bringing up the problematic stuff and so many people do and I think that's my problem that's my big problem uh it does have an effect on people when they hear the music and it's like what do we do about that it's inescapable from popular culture and the vibrations affect people, you know, like it's powerful stuff. That history is there. Thank you. 
I made a composition which was to stand in, I guess, like sonic solidarity with a perceived sample I had heard in Wagner's music. It's quite hard to talk about. I'm going to play more clips. So this is my little uh, baby Peckham Chamber Orchestra performing a composition in which I tried to deal with Wagner through this sample. And I guess I'll explain it after. composition is called The Sound of Rittman. The first part is the first nine or so minutes of Wagner's Tannhäuser Overture. So it starts with this like brass chorale and it's like really melancholy, like, like that's the first bit of the clip. Then it amps up and it's it's really building and building and, and Wagner's really known for sequence. So like um, motifs like going, like repeating, but going up. So that part that was like, uh, and it's meant to go up to this grand place. And I'm like, I know that. I know that. I know that. I know it. Sound of music. Sound of music, do re me. The first time I heard Tannhäuser, because I didn't start listening to Wagner until like 2015, 2016, when people were like, you're conducting, you've got to. I was like, okay. Heard that and was like, that's the sound of music. Went and uh, did some digging on the sound of music. We know it's written by Rogers and Hammerstein in like, 50 something in New York and I found out that a woman called a German Jewish woman called Trude Rittman devised the entire do re mi sequence um and that she her, her father was killed by the Nazis and then she moved to New York and there was two productions at the Tannhäuser at the Metropolitan Opera New York New York Met between like 51 and 53, that's when she was around. She's a composer and arranger. I'm like, she went to see it. She would have known about it already. And she would have been like, right, sampling that. I'm sampling that. Because Tannhäuser is also like, the narrative is about like this singing competition that takes place between like Venus and Earth. I'm kind of paraphrasing, look it up on Wikipedia. I want to talk about Trude Rittman, but the, it's lofty. And it there is this beginning bit to do with the elementals of music, like the scales and stuff. So I believe, I perceive that Trude Rittman was like, I'm sampling that and I'm going to do everything that Wagner would have hated. I'm going to make it into a, a Broadway musical, you know, like I'm going to make it into a song that's kind of like, and, and popular, I mean, even still today in 2020, The Sound of Music film is still like one of the top 10 films ever. Everyone knows that track, that track, that song, you know? I think it's an act of genius. I perceive it as such. And I wanted to do something that, yeah, amplified that. And also to be like, I hear you. And I kind of stand in like solidarity with you in 2017 on, onwards, you know? And I think that sampling can really do that. It really can. And 
the the people that I've spoken to who would I guess like have listened to Tannhäuser people who people I come across through like working at music institutions sometimes I'll be like do you think that that's that and they're like yeah but or like oh I hadn't thought of that but yeah it does sound like that I'm like no it's not just an accident it's really really significant oh and, and then obviously the narrative of the sound of music with its kind of like um, Austrian nationalism but also like anti anti-Nazi but you know it's it's a very interesting and complicated um kind of sample that I think is like really really important There's other ways of dealing with it. Um, Barry Kosky um, kind of portraying Wagner on stage as a way to kind of deal with the fact that Wagner himself might actually have been Jewish. So, but, you know, I'm Wagnered on. I don't want to talk about Wagner too much. Um, and it's important to think through these things today because, you know, we find ourselves, like I said before, in a place where fascism is de definitely amplified on a global level. But to carry on... Getting, getting over Wagner. Okay, so there's this film by Cyberberg, this film of Parsifal. Um, and it's a bizarre film. Maybe watch it, maybe don't. But the most important thing that I learned about Wagner, especially when I went to Bayreuth, invited, spoke at his house, slagged him off in his own house. It was great. And um, DJed and performed. But during my research there, I looked into this story of Parsifal. So I can't actually tell you the story because I don't know it, but it's pretty much um, man um, needs to, you know, do loads of stuff, seek glory, he has to go find the Holy Grail. There's like blackmail and fall in love, but it's, the, you know, the, the central protagonist is Parsifal and he goes on this huge journey and there are all these like quests and stuff and it's like, okay, fine. And the music's fine and everything's fine. But um if you look into the medieval story of Parsifal, and Wagner knew his myths, he knew what he was doing, and he knew how to research them. The Parsifal myth, if you really look at it, 13th century, it is the story of Parsifal who goes on a big journey, but Parsifal has um, a brother. Like, so his dad went traveling around the Middle East and, um, and was in Egypt, and he had a brother who was mixed race, right? So, this is completely like this, this Wagner's version of Parsifal, which obviously dominates because of his power and staying power and how ingrained everything is. There was this missed opportunity to give such a kind of platform to this tale because the original narrative, it's all centered around this joyful reunion with his mixed race brother, his, his brother with dark skin and all this stuff. And when I found out that I was like, I mean, I'm not surprised, but like, this is the kind of thing. Once 
there are these opportunities. Think, think, think how how different the world might be if Wagner had dwelled on a kind of like um, this kind of reunion, this kind of um, yeah, this coming together of the East and the West. Oh God, I'm using, I'm repeating the colonial mistakes. That this was the 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 event in the original narrative that was edited out which completely supports everything to do with his kind of idea of cleansing of making art for the german volk of making something that was really really german and it kind of like i'm i'm done now so i'm done with wagner and then and then maybe the final little tap on the final nail of the coffin is finding that so going to bayreuth weird place the town is believed to have been founded by the Counts of Andech, probably around the mid-12th century, but was first mentioned in 1194 as Bayreuth in a document by Bishop Otto II of Bamberg. The syllable root may mean rodung or clearing, whilst Bayer indicates immigrants from the Bavarian region. So it literally means immigrants out. And that was like, yep, yeah, that's my place to join the Feshbiel, to build the Feshbiel house. That's gonna be the place that I go. So it, the whole thing seems to be very much reinforced for any kind of like critics or whatever who were like, no, no, the anti-Semitism wasn't really there. It's absolutely there, but more profoundly, it's like, it's, it's a kind of fascism considered on every level. And I think by kind of, you know, having said that at his house, having said that here, um, I'm kind of done with it. But yeah, I was thinking about, you remember what Stephen Fry said very eloquently earlier about this idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk, like breaking down barriers between communities and kind of being this huge spectacle and everything like that. And then we had, we had homecoming. And I was, I was, you know, I have a lot of love for Beyonce. I have a lot of time for her. She's one of the people I learn the most from, like, honestly, um, the way that she visualizes um, kind of black history within her videos is something that I think is educating people on a mass scale. I think she does it really well. But watching Homecoming, I was like, if there is such a thing as an Afrofuturistic Gesamtkunstwerk, this is it. This is it. It's a two hour film of two two hour or two more hour performances at Coachella, like festival that she did over two weekends, I think, and filmed them both. Rehearsals were about nine months before. She just had a baby. She designed like the stage, this pyramid. Everyone on the stage is kind of part of a historically black university. The thing about it is, the live show was obviously epic. And one night they did pink and the other night they did yellow, which is very, it pings on, on you know, it pops on the, uh, in the documentary. But she was always thinking about the afterlife of this performance as a film, which it is. So there's that, that thinking simultaneously about, you know, what this is as a live moment, unique, that can't ever be repeated again. And then the document, her legacy that goes on. And um, thinking about the months of rehearsal that go into it and, and what that means, especially as somebody who rehearses with orchestras and whatnot. Um, the way that she constructs her, this accumulative narrative that is her entire career. So like the way that she samples and she slips into things. So she's t telling the story and like she does drunken love from a crane, which is like reinforcing the whole idea that, you know, what if she falls? What if we fall? You know what I mean? She's she's considered 
everything. Um, this kind of epic sunrise moment, moments that incorporated the most stunning dance, which gave her opportunities to like, you know, get down off the crane, the way everything was thought through and it was seamless and it flowed and it's, it's art. I mean, looking at the dance, the branding, you know, the costumes, the energy that's on stage that you can tell that everyone there is having the time of their life and seeing, you know, a black orchestra within, you know, the, the, the brass bands and everything like that. It was hugely emotional to watch, to, to see, to have her do that on such a scale sends a really strong message to a lot of people. You know, you can do this, you belong there. And then her is kind of like this mother figure. And then she actually does break out into a little bit of opera and then, of course, she has this kind of extremely uh, intense, it's really hot, like duet. She's, uh, you know, she's in unison with the amazing guitar player. It's fire. Like, I mean, the the dance moves, the images that you just get are just out of this world, you could say. And the preparation. Um, yeah, this idea of the Afrofuturist Gesamtkunstwerk. The Sunday service choir, I mean, the best thing about it is that Kanye is not on it. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard it, but this album was released on Christmas Day um, and uh, you have to listen to it. But there's a similarity in this in that the considerations that, that have been paid in production to capturing that essence of the live. So you're like, you know, the hey, oh, and like, you know, like, ambient things that you would do in a live performance that if you were in a studio, you wouldn't want to have there. You wouldn't want to hear the room where you wouldn't want to, you know, have anything other than the sounds that you are putting forward as music. But it, there's a kind of totality in that. And you hear Beyonce talking about that when she's like, we need to get the, we need to get the, the sound guy has got to get the stamps off the stage. We've got to get everything. And I think that that idea of kind of retaining or capturing the essence of this liveness, I think is, <clears throat> super important to kind of hinting towards some sort of totality. Um, what I like about, you know, I can't help but resonate with Kanye a bit as a Gemini. Also, this is crucial. People, anyone that thinks there's not a link between Wagner and Sun Ra, they're born on the same, they've got the same birthday. 22nd of May, Gemini's, almost 101 years apart or 99. I'm not very good at maths, but I think that's wild. Anyway, but he, he put out... You know, simultaneously had Jesus is King, which is him rapping. There's some good stuff on there. And then Jesus is Born. And the thing is, like, even when he's not on the Sunday service album himself, like speaking, uh, rapping, you know, singing, whatever, you hear he's like, this is the, the issue I have with Kanye. He's more like a kind of Wagner where he's like, this is all about me, me, she says, talking about herself for hours. But like... You hear him when the choir's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he's making himself into this kind of like God figure and it's, it's fascinating.
Beyonce has th this production. It's an artwork. It should be considered as such. I hope people study it for years, the way that we study operas and like Samkunt's works or whatever. And now I'm going to run you through the quotes because this is the thing about Homecoming. It is a lesson. There, are, She's driving through these really, really important quotes that really resonate, I think, with a lot of people and, and the emphasis on education. Like, you know, anyone who participated in Homecoming is the equivalent of what we would call like a master's or whatever. Like the amount they had to rehearse and deliver on, on that scale that's the thing on that scale not only with the like I don't know how many people in the audience but the afterlife of that document and I think it's you know epic so we're going to have a Beyonce's lesson and I have learned so much from her I'm not you know I'm not playing it's it's really really important you know if you surrender to the air you can ride it to me we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world black people and I mean that in every sense. Education must not simply teach work, it must teach life. Our mothers and grandmothers move into music not yet written. You can't be what you can't see. The youth need to see greatness reflected in our eyes. Go forth, let them know it's real. And keep going no matter what. Without community, there is no liberation. You've chosen to be a person of integrity to the best of your ability before the worms get your body. What I really want to do is be a representative of my race. I have a chance to show how kind we can be. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. So those are the quotes that are woven into the, the documentary. But it's like, that is, to have those things there, it's like, in one place, took me ages to kind of like, you know, it's so moving because it, it hits on a level and you don't, the vibrations get you, the lesson goes through your body, through the music, and it, it affects you on a molecular level. So yeah, respect to Beyonce for creating a total Afrofuturistic, Black-centric artwork. talk a little bit about the odes before performing you on so obviously it's wordplay and you know I'm putting on the ancient Greek the thing that Wagner was on about odes you know like but I'm thinking about it through the idea of debt so at the very least repaying yourself culturally I'm speaking as a diasporic person who went through the school system in the UK and never learned about enslavement apart from a quick, quick, like, you know, brief, uh, concise 
few words from dad at a young age and then just like really not knowing, not knowing, not knowing. And I think, um, you know, that'll probably resonate with a lot of people that grew up in a majority white area. Like it's, yeah, it affects you. Um, some, uh, a very important symbol, one of the Ghanaian Adinkra symbols, this is a Sankofa bird and it represents moving forward. So it's feet pointing forward, but simultaneously looking back. So you have to have an awareness of the past in order to move forward. Otherwise you're kind of stuck. Um, the 53 or so Adinkra symbols, um, which kind of have significant meaning. And I copied them out by hand when I was having a very tough time mental health wise and kind of, it, 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 you know, they speak a lot to me. These are things that I'm sharing that really ins like kind of ground this new body of work. I say new, I don't know. The odes have been going on for a while. The first touch with sci-fi is when the slaves were using drums to communicate over the distance. So the slave owners would institute reforms that um, the slaves were no longer allowed to play certain rhythms, if at all. And they weren't allowed to speak even their own languages. And they had to learn the, the, the slave master's language, which is English and you know, Jamaica or the States or Spanish or Portuguese. Or, but there was always a sense of um, a displacement of the original code you know, of the language and drums with the new code or the, the downloaded new information you know, downloaded into the cortex or whatever. Most science fiction tales dramatically deal with how the individual is going to contend with these alienating, dislocating um, societies and circumstances. And that pretty much sums up, you know, the mass experience of, of black people, you know, within um, the post-slavery 20th century world. So this idea of drumming and smoke signals has become really, really important to me. Where I'm going is, I'm still doing this PhD at Oxford, right? I start, I entered into it with the idea of comparing Sun Ra and Wagner, this Afrofuturism and Gesamtkunst work. It did not work there. They could not support that project for <laughs> lots of reasons, including not knowing much about music and or blackness or diasporic kind of culture. And it wasn't, it wasn't working. So I'm very grateful to have the opportunity of living out this parallel life of research on the other side of the world. So what I'm doing now for the PhD, which I'm very close to finishing, the title is just The Odes, The Odes. It's resisting this whole kind of like, you must have a very long title that's very specific and you must create new words. I'm like, no, 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 it's The Odes. And they exist really through sound waves, I guess. There's imagery in the videos, but my writing is talking. It's conversations, it's multiple conversations between me and other people to try and like amplify, to bring with me in a way the voices that are absent from the institution, but to kind of say that, you know, nobody can kind of own knowledge in that way and say, this is what I'm doing, this is how things are, this is it. Not at all, it's kind of, it's everything that we kind of say is, we soak everything up like a sponge, you know what I mean? And I'm trying to like bring people with me in a way to survive, so I'm not the only one, but also it makes the content far more interesting, richer, and it, it kind of lives, you know?
this idea of myth, that's how I got into academia. I was obsessed with Orpheus, this ancient myth of the power of music, the, the ability to transform or transfigure sorrow into joy. You know, it has this ancient kind of presentation that I don't even know. It's just the power of, of uh, the power of music to overcome. But that's something that is not, that lives so far, so deeply in diasporic history, but I was dwelling on it through a kind of Western European viewpoint for a long time, for a long time. And then I started thinking in terms of contemporary uh, people and I was like, Frank Ocean is contemporary Orpheus. He sings about unrequited, unrequited or unattainable love. He sings so beautifully. Uh, D'Angelo could be Dionysus always ripping himself apart and returning with a brand new album. Do you know what I mean? Like there's all these parallels. I started like thinking broadly and like being asked to be on this documentary with Neil Gaiman and like uh, Margaret Atwood, Orpheus Underground and starting to to get out. I've skipped back in time. Time's non-linear. It's fine. Black Orpheus was the film as well that kind of did it for me. The Camus film, stunning. Set in, the, in Rio de Janeiro is a kind of retelling of the myth, the book. Black Orpheus by Sartre, which I think is very special in that it's a, it's a white philosopher at least attempting to appreciate uh, the point of view of others. The, the journal Black Orpheus by Yuli Bayer, which disseminated a lot of West African uh, writing, including Chinue Achebe. So this was going from like the 50s to the 60s. All this stuff, this debt, this cultural debt, it came out of different places. my mate says instructions to the people of earth you must realize that you have the right to love beauty you must prepare to live life to the fullest extent of course it takes imagination but you don't have to be an educated person to have that imagination can teach you the true meaning of pleasure listening can be one of the greatest pleasures you must learn to listen because by listening you will learn to see with your mind's eye 
You see, music paints pictures that only the mind's eye can see. Open your ears so that you can see with the eye of your mind. I mean, that kind of brings me to the, like, the last little bit, the importance of radio and listening to music and creating you know, playlists or whatever for people to listen to. It's through the opera show, really, that I kind of um, became a broadcaster and like was able to kind of do my part for decolonizing opera in that I characterize opera as its translation from Italian, which it means work. So I'm like, okay, any kind of vocal labor is opera. So I put them all side by side without kind of, you know, playing things side by side, much like the programming with Peckham Chamber Orchestra. people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, that doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. I have to play that because it resonates a lot with things that I find hard to put into words now that kind of seem to be seem to seem as though I'm complaining about stuff you know this idea that that's not that's all in your head that's all in your head or just walking into spaces and being expected to know nothing about sound for example or are you the cleaner here or you know that kind of thing is a daily occurrence for myself and many others. And it kind of, it just drives through the fact that qualitatively things have a long way to go and things have shifted in a way that's, you know, still sub, you know, 
there's a lot to shift. And in terms of being in this kind of privileged position, this is the last quote I'll do, and then I think we're going to have to have a break. Um, it's Bell Hooks teaching to transgress, which is a huge, huge, hugely important book. Often individuals who employ certain terms freely, like theory or feminism, are not necessarily practitioners whose habits of being and living most embody the action. The practice of theorizing or engaging in feminist struggle. Indeed, the privileged act of naming often affords those in power access to modes of communication and enables them to protect an interpretation, a definition, a description of their work and actions that may not be accurate, that may obscure what is really taking place. And I think that that resonates a lot with the, the choice of striking through the words because what is Afrofuturism? Is it not kind of just getting up and getting on with that day if you're living in a, in a, in a situation of extreme kind of oppression? Surely that's it, having the strength to get up and carry on. It exists in, in lots of different ways and we're here, me obviously included, throwing around these massive words for this game of academia, but it's, it's really important to remember that Naming is a privileged act. I've learned a lot through being able to pinpoint and identify what's going on, if it's a microaggression, a macroaggression, and sharing that with other people. But that's kind of keeping me sane, keeping me alive. And I feel adept to kind of pass this on. So the odes functions like that. Um, thank you for appreciating Act One. I appreciate it. Thank you. This recording was produced by Mara Shrafiga for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and We Wurrung people of the Kula Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au